Amen. Amen. Well, I have a seat. Thank you, guys. This is, uh, as Ricky said, we've had some new stuff this morning. If this is your first time and you, and you came at 1030 thinking uh, regular service had started, we may have thrown you off a little bit. Uh, but we started a couple Sunday morning life groups because um, we thought that would be most efficient for you and the best use of our space and time. And, and uh, we had a great, great time this morning. Uh, I know Bruce had a good group in his, uh, in his life group that started this morning, and uh, I was with the FIT class, FIT class being the class where parents are with their older children, and we had a blast. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited about the FIT class and, and, and what it's going to develop into uh, this fall. And then at 1030, uh, which had been our regular service start time, uh, we started what we're calling worship and prayer, and it's 30 minutes for you to pray, meditate, uh, sing with those who are leading up here, uh, journal, take communion, uh, pray with one of our elders, or just to, just to sit and prepare your heart for worship. And so we've kind of bumped, if you noticed, our regular worship time to 11. And uh, thank you guys uh, for leading us up here and taking us through our prayer time and, uh, and into worship. And uh, we very intentionally uh, aren't going to interrupt that time between prayer and our worship and praise time. Um, this will be the first time you get any announcements, etc. So we want to give you an extended uh, time to just sit at the feet of Jesus and love on Him and let Him love on you in return. Well, if this is your first time, let me tell you we're glad you're here. My name is Daryl. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. Do this for us. There's a gray card in the back of the seat. It's uh, a perforated card. Tear the small portion off. Fill it out as much as you would like. I promise we're not going to send you a bunch of junk mail or come visit you this afternoon in the middle of your nap. But fill it out. We'd love to have a record of your visit. Just drop it in the brown wooden box at the back of the room when you leave this morning. That's our offering box. We give our tithes and offerings in that box on Sundays. And uh, you can do that during worship church. Make that a part of your worship. But if you're visiting with us, would you make that card your, your offering to us today? That's all we ask of you. We'd love to have a record of your visit and be able to pray for you. And there's a place on the back of it where you can request more information. And so we can return... Uh, the favor and get you any information you would like. You could also, uh, let me mention this, stop at the Orange Room on your way out. That has become our new headquarters for information. And we're trying to put all the information about the different components of our service from the fit class to the morning life groups to the midweek life groups for men and women to what is worship and prayer and what is worship and praise and what is worship in the Word and, and what does all this mean and how does it all fit together. All that information is on a hard copy out there now so you can have it and be able to know exactly what's going on. So if you're visiting with us, make sure you stop by there and, uh, and get any information you need. We are, we're so glad you're here. We are in a series called What God Says About Me, and we are in part two of the series. I attempted to start part two last week, but I was in a, in a, in a NyQuil stupor, and I wasn't able to go into it. So we are going to do part two of that lesson this week. I apologize that we didn't get to do that last week. But I think God intervened and just pushed me out of the way. And we had a great time of family worship and, and prayer together. It was good. I enjoyed it. I hope, I hope you did. This second part of the series I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about. We said last time as we started the series, what God says about me, that the most important thing about you, A.W. Tozer quotes, is what you think about God. And I agree with that. That's the most important thing about us. If we get God wrong, then everything else goes wrong from there. 
I added to that, however, and I'm not an A.W. Tozer, so you can, you know, step this down several notches. I added to that if that's the most important thing about us, the second most important thing about us is this. What we believe to be true about us. And you remember we said that our perspective as human beings is limited. We carry baggage into our perspective. Our perspective is based on a whole lot of stuff sometimes. And sometimes we don't see it the way others see it. But all the time, we don't quite see it the way God sees it. Only God knows what is absolutely and completely the truth about Him. And it also holds true that only God knows completely and wholly what is true about us. And you say, well, I know myself better than anyone. Are you sure about that? I mean, would you argue with the fact that God knows you even better than you know yourself? And so it makes sense. We need God to tell us what's true about us. Because sometimes we're sadly mistaken about what's true about us. We spent the first week talking about our illusions or delusions of grandeur. That outside of Christ, we very often think we're, we're much more than Scripture says we are. And it was a sobering lesson to hear that we are not what we think we are. That we are, we are needy. We are sinners. We have declared ourselves enemies of God. That was lesson one. Today, our lesson is that what God wants me to know about myself, what God says about me is that I am, I am loved. I'm, I'm very excited about this lesson and the following lessons in particular. Here's why. We have shortchanged what God has accomplished for us. We've shortchanged what God in Christ accomplished at the cross. He did far more, listen to me now, He did far more than accomplish your forgiveness. And you say, well, what more could there be? I mean, that's amazing enough, isn't it? And it is. And it is. But think about it this way. What Jesus did on the cross for our forgiveness is merely the tip of the iceberg. Pick that picture up here. I don't know if you've ever, ever, ever known this about an iceberg, but they say that an iceberg is only 9% of the hole sticking out of the water. Think about that. 9% of what an iceberg's totality is, is what we see. The mass of what an iceberg is, is what's below it. That's where we get the, the phrase, it's only the tip of the iceberg. And what you don't know sometimes very often can hurt you. We need to know all that God has accomplished for us. And so what God says about me today, he says I'm loved. And that's pretty simple, right? It's pretty, it's pretty easy. That's pretty, that's pretty basic. I mean, what more, what more could you really say? I mean, that's not really difficult. God loves me. Of course he does. Jesus loves everybody, right? On Monday, it's a little harder. It's a little harder to realize the weight of the truth that I am loved and that God says, Christian, you are loved. Holy, completely, you are loved. Now, it sounds like a trite statement on the surface. God loves us. Jesus, of course, loves his children. Jesus, of course, loves us as Christians. But in practice, when you get to the, the middle of your Wednesday or Thursday evening and things have been going horrible at home 
and you've tripped and fallen over yourself in your sins all week long. And you who know yourself next to God better than anyone else are sitting there trying to tell yourself, tell yourself that you are loved. It's not so easy, is it? Because you and I know, know each other better than anyone else. And when we sit with ourselves for a little while, we, we, know, we know the good, bad, and the ugly, don't we? And when we think about that fact that God says that I am loved, and we try and swallow it, we try and, we try and sit with it, it's, it's not always that easy of a statement. The fact is, we don't believe Him. I don't know that we fully trust it. I don't know that we fully grasp it. As we think about who we are and what we know about ourselves, it seems logically impossible that we could be wholly and completely loved as a declaration of God, that he would say that's true about us. How can he love me? If anyone knew what I knew about me, if anyone knew my thoughts, my motives, the things that uh, are thorns in my flesh, the things that I struggle with, stumble over, the arguments that my spouse and I have, the times I lose my temper with my children, the thoughts that I don't even share with my spouse, whatever may be going through your mind. And then add to that, add to that all that the ancient adversary would say to you, would say is true about you. And we know that he is the father of all what? Lies. And he's the best at it. And he would have us to believe a lie about our God, number one. That's how he started right from the beginning. He would also have us to believe lies about ourselves. He would have us to believe lies about our God and ourselves. That surely God can't love you. Surely God can't love me. Surely God must be angry with me. Surely God must fall short in his approval of me. Surely he can't see everything that I see and more and say that, I, that I'm loved. But that's what he says. Christian, that's what he says. And so we've got a fight on our hands, a fight for the truth, a fight for the truth. Here's what I want you to do. This morning I want to show you what God says about his love for us and the extent of his love for us. Turn to Romans chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles under the seats around you. Feel free to grab one of those. Romans chapter 5. It's about this far into the New Testament. Just grab it, pop it open right there. You'll be good. If you want to follow along on the screen, you can do that as well. I want to show you Romans chapter 5 this week and next week we'll continue and wrap this, this session up. My prayer is, is, is Paul's prayer that the love of our God will be poured out by the Holy Spirit by the time we get through this passage. Now you hang on right here. You hang on. And you're going to see how it can be that God says, I am loved. Romans chapter 5. After Paul has in chapters 3 and 4 told us how it is we are lost sinners and how we are in need of faith appropriated by grace that only comes from God 
In chapter 4, he tells us by examples through the Old Testament that his plan has always been that men respond to him in faith. When Paul talks about this, this activity of faith that we're involved in, understand this because we often misunderstand it. This activity of faith that we're involved in is not to our credit. Faith in Scripture, and especially as he goes through at the end of chapter 3 and goes into examples with Abraham in chapter 4, his argument is pointed squarely at God as the responsible party. When it comes to our salvation, here's Paul's argument. It's all on the shoulders of God. The only part that we can have in it is to let go of the steering wheel and put our complete faith in someone else. So when we talk about faith, it isn't, it isn't that I've mustered up my own faith. It isn't my part in the deal. It's what God has done so that we can completely let go. And all we do in our part is to say God has done it. And so now having argued that we are sinners in need of grace and that we are appropriating that grace through faith that God has provided, he's going to go into chapter 5. And therefore, watch this, having been, past tense, past tense, having been justified by, what's the word? Faith. Having been justified, that's an activity that was done for us. We have been justified. We didn't justify ourselves. What he's saying is, based on what he's already argued in chapters 3 and 4, we have been justified. Now he's bringing us up to speed, okay? Since that is true about us, he's already argued for it. I'm not going to take you back there. He's already argued for the point that we have been justified by faith. Not of works, not anything we have done. God has taken care of it. He has done it. We take our hands off the wheel. Therefore, having been, past tense, justified by faith, that's what God has already done, we have now, present tense, he moves now from what God has done to where you and I as Christians are right now. Here's what he says. We have, because of that justification through faith, we have, what is it? Peace with God. Now that's an amazing thought at the conclusion of all the previous chapters, okay? But now look where he goes. Therefore, having been justified by faith, past tense, we have right now, right here, folks, peace with God. Wow. To be clear, it came through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom? And the whom is Jesus, verse 2. Through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith, not of ourself, but by faith, we have received, obtained our introduction into this grace which we stand. Every time I read that, I get this, I get this mental image of, of us kind of standing as believers, kind of like in this heavenly cloud and grace coming up to our knees to the point where you can't escape it, you can't get out of it. God's grace just floods in through this whom of verse 2, pointing back to verse 1. By what Jesus has accomplished, past tense, justifying us through his blood, we have right here today peace with God. And because of that, we have obtained, we have now in our possession, grace. A depth of grace that we can't escape. 
Keep going. And so we exalt, or you could translate that, we boast in hope of the glory of God. Now let me point out to you, we've been past tense, having been justified. We've been present tense. We have peace with God. And now he goes all the way into the future, that we have now this hope into this glorious future with our God. Past, present, and future, Paul summarizes his argument up to this point is that we are sure and we can we can confidently exalt and boast. And in fact, you could translate this, that Paul says, let us exalt. Let us boast in the hope that we have because what God has already done and what we have right here, we've obtained it. Not by anything we've done, but by faith through a person. And not only this, if that's not good enough, if it's not good enough that you're on solid ground, you're standing knee-deep in grace, because of what Jesus has done. If that's not enough, he keeps going. Verse 3. And not only this, but we also exalt, we also boast in our tribulations, even when it goes bad. Here in the present tense, we boast in our translation. We can exalt in our trans, uh, tribulations, knowing that our tribulations have a purpose. They bring about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character. And proven character, again, leads us to hope. Hope in Scripture is not a wish. It's a confidence. Paul's arguing for us to have a confidence, Christian, based on not what we've done, but what God has, past tense, already done for us, and we stand knee-deep in. And he said, even now in this present tense life, even when things go bad, we look forward and we have a hope through even the bad days, through even the doubts. We have a hope that points us forward. Keep going. This hope, verse 5, it won't disappoint us. It won't shame us, you could say. Putting our hope in God in this way, placing our faith in this grace that we stand in, that we've been introduced by faith into, having our hope in this kind of God, even when things go poorly in our life, don't worry, you won't be, you won't be put to shame. God will come through. Our hope does not disappoint because, look at the phrase, here it is. The love of God. This is the crux of the whole passage. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's Paul's goal. That through everything he's said up to this point and what he's about to say, we will have through the Holy Spirit the love of God poured out in our soul. So that we might confidently grasp this grace that we stand in. Now he's going to define, what is this love of God? Look at verse 6. This love of God looks like this. For while we were still helpless, we sang in the song earlier there, Ricky, in our helpless estate, even so it is well with my soul. It's from this passage right here. That song is taken. For while we were still helpless, now here's what he's doing. He's going back past tense, isn't he? We used to be helpless. And he says, let me explain to you what the love of God for you is. Past tense, when you were still helpless, check this out, at the right time. Old black preacher used to say, he may not come when you want him, but he's right on time. At the right time, while we were yet helpless, God intervened. At the right time, Christ died. Past tense. For who? 
Now you're not just helpless. Who are you? You're ungodly. You are the opposite of God. You are the furthest thing away from God, past tense, that you could ever dream you could be. You are now not only helpless in Paul's mind, but you are opposite of godly. You are the furthest thing from God. And yet, at the right time, God died for you. That's the definition of the love of God in Paul's mind. The love of God, think back, you were helpless. And you were the opposite of godly. And yet Christ died. Are you getting a picture of the love of God? If you haven't gotten it yet, he keeps going. Verse 7. For one will hardly die. It's like Paul starts to think about it here for a second. What is that? What does that mean that Christ died for us? And he said, let me, let me help you to fathom the depths of the fact that Christ died for you while you were helpless and ungodly. Let's, let's make sure we grasp this. And so he unpacks it even further. For one will hardly die, humanly speaking, for a righteous man. It's not common that you're going to give your life for just anybody, Right? I mean, if somebody says today, you're going to have to step in front of a bullet, step in front of a bus to push somebody out of the way. You, you in your humanity, you want to know that it's going to be worth it, right? I mean, we just don't do that frivolously. That's not how we are. That's not how we act. That's not in us. That's not in our nature. Paul is going to make sure we understand the depth of the love of God. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. <laughs> and more than that, he keeps going. Perhaps, just maybe... Once in a while, kind of, is the attitude here. Maybe, perhaps, for the good man, someone would dare to die. Are you catching the redundancy here in the heart of Paul? We just don't do this, he says. Do you get that? We, we don't act this way. I mean, maybe for someone who's righteous, perhaps someone we might be able to find that person out there somewhere, might decide to do something along this for, for a good person. Maybe we would dare. That's a good word. Maybe we would dare. But what about God? Verse 8, but God. This is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. What a, what a comparison. A comparison to what we would do, <laughs> to who God is, to the extent of God's love for you. Watch this. God's nothing like us. God's nothing like you. He's nothing like me. Because God, on the other hand, demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, not righteous, not good people, Christ died for us. Do you understand the contrast? Do you understand that that's the complete opposite end of the spectrum from you and I? Maybe someone out there somewhere on a good day if it's a good person, might dare to take a bullet for another. But God, <laughs> knowing that you are helpless, ungodly, what does he say here? Now, verse 8, you're a sinner. 
still, Christ died for you. What does the love of God mean? This is what it means. That despite who you are in your sinfulness, he still died for you. Now, let me explain something here. Verse 8, when he says that God demonstrates his own love towards us. You know what a demonstration is? You know what a demonstration is? You ever had the Kirby man come to your house and give you a demo? Yeah. Knocks on your door and says, I got this vacuum out here and I need it. I want to show you, can I just come in and I'll vacuum like 18 rooms in your house for no money at all. And, uh, and there's no conditions, no, uh, no, no uh, you don't have to sign anything, you don't have to buy anything. I just want to show you this cool vacuum. And then he does all this and mazes you and then sucks all the bed bugs out of your mattress and you're like grossed out completely. And now the demonstration is over and like now, but, and, and this too could be yours for $400,000, right? Whether it's Kirby or whatever else it is. If you have a Kirby, I'm not indicting you, I'm just saying. It could, we all know the Kirby man. Of all, you get what I'm talking about here? It's a demo. It's a demonstration. Now don't miss this. This is so good. What is the love of God as Paul explains it? Well, it's nothing like us. He says, check this out. The love of God <laughs> in Christ's death for you is amazing in and of the fact that he died for you, helpless, ungodly sinner. But check this out. Christ's death for you is a mere demo. It's just a piece. It is simply the tip of the iceberg. There is so much more to the love of God, church. Now how can that be? That the death of Christ is just the tip of the iceberg. When we speak of the love of God, it's not my words, it's Paul's, but God demos his love towards us, then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Church, Christ's death for you on the cross, it was merely, and at the risk of sounding heretical right here, listen well, it was merely a sample a taste. It was like that little Chick-fil-A nugget on the toothpick in the food court of the mall it's just a sample of the entirety, the completeness of the love of God. Now, some of us Christians, why are we in this, why are we in this series? Because here's what we do. Here's what we do. We walk around the food court at the mall grabbing samples for a meal. Don't act like you haven't done it. And when you've gone up to enough of them, you send your kid, go get some of that. Go grab one of those for me, Junior. You get your little orange Julius cup, and then you, you know, you've got a full meal deal by the time you get around to the little cookie factory place, and now you get a little piece of cookie, and everybody's done. <laughs> Listen, give up the samples is the point. Belly up to the counter. There is a buffet of God's love available to us. Christ's death on the cross for ungodly, helpless sinners like you and I is just the demo. It's just the sample. It's just a taste, church, of the completeness, of the unbelievable, unfathomable depth, height, width, the magnificence of God's extravagant, lavish love that Paul is praying would be poured out through the Holy Spirit's movement in the body of Christ so that we could have confidence 
and say, I'm loved. I don't know how. It doesn't make sense, humanly speaking. No one would do what God has done, much less for someone who's righteous or good, but that I'm sinful and I'm completely helpless. As Isaiah says, I'm completely undone, and now he's died for me. Paul says, that's just a taste. It's just a taste. Now, I don't, I don't, man, I don't get that, but that's the truth, church. And if we don't trust God in this relationship and what he says about us, what kind of relationship do we have? Isn't it hard when you tell somebody you love them, you love them over and over and over, and they just can't, they can't, they can't believe it. They just, how difficult, how strained that makes the relationship. I wonder how often God feels a strain in the relationship because he wants us to understand how completely he loves us. And he would, he would imagine that having gone to the cross, it would make sense to us. Having demoed his love to us in that yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't, isn't that taste enough to cause us to hunger for the whole thing? Keep going. Verse 9, he gets to the point. He's just been building his argument here. Here's the real point. If this has been true about us, remember he's jumped back past tense, called us ungodly, called us sinners, called us helpless. He's gone back past tense to make his argument, to build his argument. If that's been true about the love of God towards you, that even though you were all those things, Christ still died for you as a demonstration of his love. If that's all true, and now he builds up to a crescendo and says in the next verse, much more than... Much more than. Much more than what? Much more than. Keep going. Having now, and we're back present tense. We're back present tense. We're now back in Christ. Having been justified through faith in that person who gave his shed blood for, shed blood for us. We're back. You back up to speed. Now he says, now, now get back over here in Christ where we are right now. Understanding what he's done for us up to this point. How much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Here's his point. If God could love you that much when you were past tense you, how much more does he love you now that you're present tense in Christ, Christ in you, sons and daughters, heirs? You have been redeemed justified. Now when God looks at you, he sees Christ. Justice has been served over your sin. And so he says, does it make any sense that if he loved you that much in just the demo, that he would love you any less now that you are sons and daughters? It makes no sense not to believe that you are holy, completely, unconditionally Christian. You are loved despite what you think might be true about yourself, despite what you think your flesh is telling you reserved from your old nature, despite what the adversary of old is telling you about God as a lie and you as a lie, the truth is that you are loved. Doesn't it make sense? Simply based on his demo. Verse 10, if you didn't get it, he's going to say it another way. For if, while we were enemies, gets even worse, doesn't it? 
I've gone from being helpless, ungodly, to a sinner, and now I'm a flat-out enemy. It's as if Paul says, let me push you as far back as I can. Let me make sure you understand from as worst, from as bad as it can be. For if, while we, you and I, were enemies, if we were reconciled, and those are both facts, you were an enemy, I was an enemy. But it's also a fact that we were, past tense, reconciled. Reconciled is an accounting term. Every month, every couple months, we have someone come in and they reconcile the books. They make sure Vic can count correctly. They add it up. They said, does this total up? Does this make sense? The bottom line, does it? They reconcile the books. Paul says that if while we were enemies of God, he reconciled us. He looked at us through the lens of the shed blood of Christ and he added it up and he said reconciled. If, Paul says, if as enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life. I'm in Christ. You're in Christ now. And we don't always feel like we're loved. We know ourselves next to God better than anyone else. We know all of our sin. We know our, we know our, we know our bad motives. We know our shortcomings. We know, we know everything. We know what Monday looks like. We know what Friday night looks like. We know the worst about ourselves. And yet God loves us still. That's the truth. That's the fact of the matter. Why? Why? Paul says, it makes complete sense. If God could love you when you were completely unlovable, how much more now that you are his sons and daughters, reconciled and made right through the justification by the grace of his son on the cross through the appropriation of faith, how much more now that you have been reconciled and everything adds up, when God looks at the bottom line of your life, it all adds up. How much more should we know that God loves us? If he could love me way back then. Look at this and we'll be done. Verse 10. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That's what he did. Past tense, through his death. That's what he did, dying for us. Through the cross, we were reconciled to him. How much more now shall we be saved by his, what is the word? Life. If you circled the word life and you drew a line back to another phrase in that same verse as a comparison, what would it be? His death. If he accomplished this through his death, how much more, church, do you think he can accomplish now through his resurrected, at the right hand of the Father, living Is that good news? <laughs> that, is, that is amazing news. What does he say about me? You know what he says? He says, I am loved. For if God demonstrated his love towards me in that yet while I was a sinner, he would die for me, how much more now that we have a risen Christ should the sons and the daughters of the firstborn among many brethren know in confident hope past, present, and future, that we are loved. It's the truth about you. You who are in Christ. Let's pray.
Lord, I, 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 I know that um, the depths of your love we cannot fathom. Your grace is um, beyond us. Your mercy is beyond our understanding. Might this morning your Holy Spirit pour out in our hearts a level of comprehension of your love that perhaps we've not had to this point. It doesn't matter, Lord, what we think about ourselves to be true. It only matters what you tell us. Galatians 5 says that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And most of us have only scratched the surface. Most of us have only tasted the sample. Most of us have only seen the demonstration of your love. Oh, Lord. Might we have a deeper understanding of the height and the depth, the extent of your great love for us. There is no one in heaven on earth like you, God. You are completely holy and completely perfect. We trust you with the truth. And so we're going to move by faith and trust what you say to be true about us. This morning, I pray that you bring rest to the family of God, that you bring peace to hearts, that you help us to understand that we have, because of your son, we have We have peace with you. It is ours. It has been obtained for us. Our justification has been accomplished. Our sin has been wiped clean. Our old sins, our current sins, and even our future sins, they've been covered by the blood of your Son. And Lord, to understand the depth of your love, Lord, it will cause us to be fully devoted to you in deeper ways. So would you show us, God? Would you show us? Would you amaze us with your love? Far too long we've been, we've been taking the sample. Holy Spirit, pour out the bounty of your love before us. Give us a hunger and a thirst to know the depths of your love. Help us to to eat our full. To taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, there may be those who, um, who feel very far from you this morning. Who know that they have not, they have not by faith applied the justification of the cross of Jesus to their life. They've not taken their hands off the wheel and trusted Christ for their salvation. They've not been born again. Lord, I pray that there would be a holy, a holy fear of your love. 
that if your love is this grand and if your love is this deep and this wide and we reject it, our fear should be great. If you've gone to the extent that you have gone to for sinners, for ungodly, helpless enemies that we have declared ourselves to be, if you've gone to such great extents because of your love, how dare we, how dare we, how dare we walk away from your great love? Lord, I pray that we would fear the holy love of God, but that we would run to it. By faith, we would trust in your provision for us that the shed blood of your Son has covered our sins and that the truth is that even though we are enemies right now, even though that may be our present tense, you can change that right now. And that could be our past. Our present can be that we are sons and daughters, that we are, by faith, justified and reconciled. And that when you look at us, it'll all add up because of Jesus. Lord, for those who it doesn't add up to right now, would would your Holy Spirit pour your love upon them so that they might be drawn close? Lord, I thank you for men and women who come to worship you, to not be entertained, but to humble themselves in prayer before you. I thank you for the, the people who call this church home, the people who desire to be in community together and to love you more together, the people who desire not to pretend on Sunday mornings, but desire to grow closer to you, to hunger and thirst for a deeper encounter with you. Lord, I thank you for these. I thank you that, that you allow me to be a part of this family and this growing body. Draw us closer together as we understand the depths of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's sing one more song. Why don't you stand with us and we'll be dismissed.